0: The revolution. morning everybody. Uh, that was our new introduction to our new Living Centred series. For those of you that didn't quite catch it, uh, stay tuned and listen and watch next week. It's kind of got a real New Order vibe, if you ask me, or Joy Division type vibe to it. So if you, uh, if you know who those bands are, uh, you're, re- uh, you're really old. I do. I've got all the 12 inches and LPs at home, and I'm really old. <laughs> um, I want to just start with a statement this morning, just to get the ball rolling. Uh, You'll eventually see why I'm making this point, and that is this. It's a simple statement, wonder what you think. Jesus was a good bloke. Jesus was a good bloke. For those of us that were here uh, three or four weeks ago, when we had our baptism meeting, I did a, a, a message based around who is Jesus. And I spent some time trying to encourage us about who Jesus really was. And Jesus is a good bloke. He did things, for example, like turning water into wine at parties. Some of us were praying before this meeting, and uh, that illustration came out. What a, what a great event, what a great party to be at when the, when the drinks run out and Jesus is around and he changes his water into wine. That's a great party to be at. Cause it makes it cheap as well, doesn't it? <laughs> perhaps for someone for wedding season. Uh, He multiplied food at picnics. Some of us, I think, might be going out for a picnic after our meeting this morning to Cannon Hill Park. Uh, If you haven't got any food, don't worry. Jesus can provide food (laughs) as well as Aldi can. But he did that in the Bible. He provided food for people at picnics. Uh, He raised people from the dead at funerals. This is a bit more sober, even though I've got a half-smile on my face. Going to funerals is not a pleasant experience. It's a gut-wrenchingly sorrowful experience. So yeah, Jesus in the Bible, if he was at a funeral, had this little trick in his bag, which was raising people from the dead. How exciting must that have been, to see someone rise to life at a funeral? Jesus had a regular habit of commanding healing over people. He caused blind people to see blind people to see if someone who is blind becomes able to see their whole life turns upside down it's very very exciting deaf people to hear I saw a little clip on YouTube a few weeks ago how somebody had uh, some of the medical people put something into a a person who'd never heard anything in their life and it was a a YouTube video of what happened when she started hearing for the first time and I tell you what it was compelling because she was in tears as she was able to hear things for the first time Jesus caused deaf people to hear good bloke Jesus caused lame people to be able to walk. What else did Jesus do? Jesus befriended all sorts of people in society that you or I are a little bit uh, troubled by befriending sometimes. So he he befriended tax collectors. Nobody likes the Inland Revenue, HMRC. We have a guy that comes to see us. We've got questions about how much he likes us. We're trying to love him as much as possible. It's a little bit of a sort of standoffish thing. Don't really want to be your friend, mate. You might take money off us. But Jesus befriended tax collectors. Jesus befriended lepers, people that are outcasts in the society in which he lived. Jesus befriended beggars and prostitutes. So he's a good bloke. Jesus had a regular poke at stuck-up religious people who thought they knew how to do life. If Jesus was here this morning, he'd probably have a little poke at me because I'm one who's supposed to tell you how to do life. And he was always one that said, yeah, you think you know how to do it, but you don't. People love that of the day. They gathered to Jesus and say, have another poke at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Perhaps you don't want him to have a poke at me, but I think he would. He was a master storyteller as well. People love Jesus' stories. So when he told a story, he revealed uh, things about people, their prejudices toward life and other people groups and to God and to Jesus himself. He was a master storyteller and he was a kind man. Jesus was a kind man. He forgave people caught in wrongdoing. So there's the woman caught in adultery. He forgave her. He didn't throw a stone at her like everybody else wanted to do. He welcomed children into his presence. Children are a great judge of good character. And we know in the Bible that the disciples had to fend off the children from coming to Jesus. Why? Because they saw something in him they really thought was great and they wanted to be around. He was a fun guy. He was a guy that looked after his mum when he knew he was going to die. And you may think, big deal, wouldn't anybody do that? Well, not all sons or daughters look after their parents when they're getting old. But Jesus made sure that when he knew he was going to die, he was going to care for Mary and said, John, look after my mum, my will you for me? And he affirmed Peter. Even when Peter denied him a cock crowed three times and everything went pear-shaped, Jesus restored Jesus because he saw in him and believed in him and knew he had something more from into the future. He was a kind man. Jesus was a good bloke. And if he was around today in 21st century Birmingham, the truth of the matter is most of us would be attracted to this guy who was that nice, who was that good, who was that kind. He had a sparkle, a sparkle of joy, a sparkle of unselfishness, a sparkle of love that drew, drew people to him. He was a good bloke. And when he arrived on planet Earth 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine, he wanted everybody to know that. Hence the miracles. Hence the healings. Hence the kindness. Hence the fun. Hence the friendship. Hence getting alongside people in different walks of life that not everybody else wanted to get alongside. He was a guy that wanted to say, Hey, it's good to know me. I'm a good bloke. Jesus was a good bloke. The question is, though, if Jesus was so good... Why is it that not everybody is drooling over his goodness? Because isn't it the case that when we go to the movies or read a book or wherever, we always love the good guys to win the day, whatever day they're in that they need to win. We want the good guys to win. We know that, don't we? We're, we're waiting for the moment and the huge crescendo at the end of the movie where good wins and the heroes, you know, get, the guy gets to go and everything's great. And yet with Jesus, there seems to be more a sense of, oh, not sure, not sure, looks like a good guy, but not too sure. There seems to be some questions underneath the surface which doesn't really line up with, yeah, but Jesus was such a good guy. He's such a good guy. And why is that? And I'd like to put it to us that for all his goodness, Jesus kept putting forward some godness, some god things. And he was controversial. And he said some things about himself that started making people think, oh, do I really want to hear that? Does he really think that he's that? So what did he say? He said, I'm the bread of life. Meaning if you're hungry for something in life, Jesus said, I can give you, I can give you food. I can give you life that satisfies. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Meaning that if you're looking for direction in life or insight in life or to know how to work out the right and wrong in life, Jesus is the way. He said, I'm the light of the world. Saying, look, you want to see, see how this world really works? The darkness is in the world. In me, you can see it all and know it all. Jesus started putting himself up, saying, I'm not just a good bloke. I'm God. He said, I can forgive sins. He said, one day I'm going to die and rise again from the dead. He became, he started to get edgy and controversial, and people didn't like that as much. And so the goodness started getting overridden by the godness. Jesus was a good bloke, but was he God? Now, last week, and as I say, you'll see the relevance of all that in a minute. Last week, we started a new series called Living Centred. And it's a series that's focusing our attention around what it means to live lives that are centred around Jesus. We've been through a series over a number of weeks in Oasis Church called Centred, where we've been encouraging everybody to pause in life, if you're a follower of Jesus, get centred on Jesus, all he's done through his death and resurrection, and then go on in life, continuing in life, aware of the immensity of the influence Jesus can have in your life. So there's been a a series basically encouraging us to centre on Jesus. Stop, centre, and then continue an encouragement to us to get time in the presence of God. Not to rush, but to drink in the word of God, to pray and to enjoy worship and that kind of stuff. Get centred on Jesus and that will therefore help us to outwork what life looks like. And therefore, that's why we're now in our living centred series. What What it means to live our lives in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. And last week, Adrian started that series by looking at the Beatitudes in the Bible, because the series is based on the Sermon at the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. And so we looked at eight characteristics of Christian living last week. And I'd encourage you, if you um, weren't here, to get online and have a look at that, at that talk, and have a look at the talk, have a listen to the talk online, because that would be a really encouragement to you. The encouragement, in a nutshell, was let's be joy bringers, wherever we're at and whatever we're doing. Joy bringers, because we're blessed as we do all the things that Adrian was talking about last week. This week, we're going to look at what it means to be salt and light. It's the next bit of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, three short verses, and we're going to start looking at what it means to be influencers for good in the society in which we live. Influencers for good, because Jesus was an influencer for good, as we've just heard. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. I'm going to read the uh, verses and then we're going to ask ourselves three questions and I'm going to tell you what those three questions are in a minute. So Matthew 5 verse 13 to 16, this is Jesus speaking to those people who were followers of his. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out And trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This actually is very simple teaching that Jesus is giving, and yet it's compelling in its simplicity. And so it's a very simple set of three questions that I want to ask this morning. And the three questions are these. What is salt and what is light? Who is salt and who is light? And then, are we salt and are we light? So it's a what, a who, and an are we set of questions this morning. So let's start with what is salt and what is light. And the reason for doing this is because as Jesus was preaching all those years ago to his followers, he knew that they would know immediately what salt and light is. And immediately the imagery that he was conjuring up in using those words would have them thinking about what it meant for them in their lives. So, what is salt and what is light? This is just a brief uh, lesson for you. Some of you may know this already. But what is salt? It's a mineral substance. Did you know? primarily sodium chloride, and something that may not have uh, passed your attention, it's white in colour. <laughs> I visited a website which, uh, which uh, I found, uh, www.canadianliving.com. I encourage you to go. There's a fascinating website. On, the, on there they had 45 uses of salt. <laughs> I thought, I can't go through 45, but I've gone for my top ten. <laughs> Here they are, and one for the children. There's one for everybody, I think, in all of these. One for the children. Sprinkle salt in the areas where you have ants and watch them flee. Uh, probably because the, the, little, the little bits of sort of like rocks, white rocks falling from heaven. for the. <laughs> ants. But have a go. If you've got a little ants at home, get your salt out and see what happens. One for bakers amongst you. You've got an, a, a cutting board that's got a bit of meat stain or vegetable stain on it, a bit smelly. What you do is you, you get a little amount of salt, rub it on the board, some warm water, rub it in, give it a soap off, and, and all of a sudden the smell goes away. I'm sure you knew that one. One for hay fever sufferers, of which I'm one. All you need to do is have a, a quarter of a cup of warm water, half a teaspoon of salt, and snort it up your nose. <laughs> and everything works out. I haven't tried that yet. But there it was on www.canadianliving.com. Particularly works in Canada. One for pie makers. You know, I like this one for pie makers. Obviously, a move on from bakers. It's so specific, it's beautiful. If the juice from a, fu- a fruit pie overflows while you're baking, sprinkle some salt onto the spill. It will turn into a, a crisp area of the pie, making it easy to remove once the oven has cooked the pie. So just you, you you pie makers amongst you, if the fruit begins to spill out of the edge of the pie, just get a little bit of salt around the edge, stick it back in the oven, and Bob's your uncle. It could be salt and fruit pie for your guests. One for adventurers, stinky thermos flask anyone? My dad used to have a stinky thermos flask. He took soup to work every single day for goodness knows how many years. And uh, he used to keep, keep it in a cupboard at home, and boy, did it stink. All he needed was a little bit of salt and a little bit of hot water. Shake it all up, and everything goes away. So if you're an adventurer and you've got a stinky thermos flask, you can have that one for nothing. One for beauticians, probably one for the ladies amongst us this morning. Make your skin glow by rubbing it equal parts olive oil and salt. Try that at home tonight secretly. See if, uh, see if anybody notices. I think uh, I watched Graeme Norton on Friday night. Cheryl Cole was on. Her skin was glistening. It must have been salt and olive oil that she'd rubbed in together along with all her tattoos. Uh, one for an emergency. Uh, did you know? If you get stung by a bee immediately wet the bee sting with water and cover it with salt. I would say also take the sting out first otherwise it will just conglomerate in there but I didn't know that one. Three to go I know you're with me. One for florists. Uh, fill your vase with salt so that you can put in those lovely artificial flowers that we like to have at home, stick them in and everything stays nice and rigid. Did you know that? That's what you should do. Pet lovers, another one of my favourites. You can uh, Salt can repel mosquitoes. Salt, I was sharing this with a couple of guys who went on the on the, the lads uh, weekend, uh, Friday night and Saturday morning. I had a great time, but a lot of them got, uh, got bitten by some rather nasty mosquitoes, apparently. I said, look, you should have come to me. Salt can repel mosquitoes. What you're supposed to do, apparently, is get hold of your pet, dunk it in seawater, and take it with you wherever you go. And that will repel the mosquitoes. So I thought I'm gonna, I've got a rabbit. I, whenever I'm going out for a walk, going to dunk him in some seawater, put him on a lead, and carry me around. And finally, one for everybody, I'm sure most of us have done this already. Watch your household slugs disin- disintegrate into a mulch of slime by sprinkling a liberal amount of salt right across little sluggies' back. Does anybody care for slugs? It sounds like people do, actually. Anybody love slugs here? I don't think Jesus had in mind any of those uses for salt (laughs) when he was teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you're the salt of the earth. What did he have in mind? He had in mind the two things that the people of the day knew salt did. And what are the two things that they knew salt did? The first is it acts as a preservative. It acts as a preservative to stop decay in food or in meat or in other foodstuffs. So it was a preservative. It stopped decay. It stopped things going bad. So Jesus knew that in using salt, he was using imagery that would preserve things from corruption or protect things from disease. That's the first thing. And that would be true in our culture today as well. And the second thing is that salt adds flavor. So a little bit of salt sprinkled onto stuff gives it a little bit more flavor. And Jesus knew that they used salt for flavor in his day as well. And so there was a sense of... Jesus introducing, "You're the salt of the earth." He's basically thinking, stopping decay, stopping disease, protecting us from nasty stuff, and bringing flavour to things. It's not rocket science. It's just what it is. It's just what it is. And the second, the second thing is light. What is light? Now, again, we all know what light is. I'm not On www.canadianliving.com, they didn't have 45 uses of light that I can then pick my top 10. That's probably a good thing, you're thinking, because you, you've run out of juice with those top 10 already. But anyway, there are three things that light does. And the first is it's visible. Light is meant to be visible. And uh, Jesus knew that in his day, people lived in houses where they only had one little window that was 18 inches across in diameter. It's circular. And it was the only window in the house. And so what people used to do is have lamps, that he refers to later in his teaching, that they used to light and put on a stand. They all knew that they had largely dark houses. Jesus knew, as they knew, that light is meant to be visible and light things up. And that's what light does. So first of all, light lights things up. It's blindingly obvious, but it's true, isn't it? That's what light does. The second thing is light guides. So lights put down on a pathway, down your garden or a runway or wherever, can be something that helps you walk down a path that isn't otherwise clear. So light is meant to be visible, light guides, and finally light can warn. Light can warn. So if you've got a burning beacon in their day on the side of a cliff nearby, near, near to the sea, it acts as a kind of a, a, an ancient day lighthouse to stop the ships hitting the rocks and all the rest of it, light can act as a warning. So you've got salt stopping decay and adding flavour, and you've got light, which is meant to be visible, which is meant to guide, and which is meant to act as a warning. Those are the five headlines that Jesus had in mind when he was talking about salt and life. I say, it's not always been hours working through the theology all of all this. That's just what it is. Stopping decay, adding flavor, being visible, guiding and warning. The disciples, the group of followers of Jesus, would have known all of that. So that's what it is. That's what salt is and that's what light is. And if you didn't know that, uh, as I say, you can have that for nothing and you can tell all your friends about the top ten uses of salt, particularly the one about dunking your rabbit in seawater. What is salt and light? First question. Second, who is salt and who is light? Who is salt and who is light? Now, this sounds pretty obvious. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. That's what he said. He said that to the disciples. And when Jesus makes that declaration, what all of his disciples probably thought then, and what we think now is immediately, well, how does that relate then? What, what is Jesus about to tell me to do with the fact that I am salt and that I am light? He's going to tell me to do something. He's going to tell me to be salt and light in some way, shape, or form. He's going to give me some practical tips. That's what's going to happen next. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Well, tell me how to be salt and light. That's where we all jump to when we come across this teaching. But the bit that we miss is the fact that he says it at all. The fact that he says it at all. This is where theologians do speculate about how big the crowd was that Jesus was talking to. It just says followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus in the Bible. That could have been a large crowd. It could have been somewhere between 100 and 120, because that's a number that's used in the Bible for the followers of Jesus. It could have been 70, 72, because that's a number used in the Bible for the followers of Jesus. It could have been as small as 12, just the disciples of Jesus. I like to think that it was just the 12 disciples of Jesus, and Jesus is announcing over them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And can you imagine being in that little group of men, hearing what Jesus is saying at that point, thinking, well, actually, I'm not sure I am. Twelve men having a proclamation made over them by Jesus that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The earth and the world are absolutely massive, huge, huge. And yet Jesus is saying, you small group of people who are following me are salt of the world and are light of the world. And you might think that you're not, but you are. And in first century Palestine, they were just a group of nobodies following Jesus, thinking, we're not going to influence the world for Jesus. And yet Jesus made that proclamation over them that they would. And of course, they did. That's the exciting bit. When Jesus made that proclamation that they are salt and they are light, they might not have thought that that was the case, but actually they ended up being exactly that. He made a pronouncement over them that was absolutely true. And when Jesus makes a pronouncement over us, they're always true. Jesus is always right. So he says they're the salt of the world and the light of the earth, but the other way around. And that's what happened. They ended up being salt and light to the whole world, to the whole earth. That's what happens. That's why we're here today, because they were salt and light to the earth and to the world. That's quite an exciting point to grasp. The question we've got to ask ourselves then, how did that happen? How did it happen? How did that pronouncement that Jesus made over them actually take effect and change them and cause them to be salt and light in the way that he said they were going to be salt and light? How did that happen? And I'll tell you how it happened. It happened by them encountering, embracing, and following Jesus 100%. Why? Why did they want to embrace him, encounter him, and follow him 100%? Because they knew He was a good bloke. He was a good bloke, wasn't he? He was a good bloke who was kind, who was friendly, who did miracles, who healed people, who had amazing teaching, who told wonderful stories, who saw the best in them, who was forgiving and merciful and always had time for all sorts of different types of people. They saw in Jesus one who was one to follow. They saw in Jesus one who was already salt and who was already light. Jesus is the salt of the world, and Jesus is the light of the world. And he's making the pronouncement upon them, but they could see it in him. So when Jesus healed somebody, he stops a human body from decaying. Isn't that salt? When Jesus brings favor to people by forgiving them, isn't that great character that he's displaying at that point? He brought light to situations by saying, look, the world says do it this way, but why don't we do it this way? The kingdom of heaven is near, he said in Mark when he came on on planet Earth. The kingdom of heaven is near... Come, repent and follow me. So they saw in Jesus someone who had real salt and real life that was worked out by good life living. And that was attractive and they thought, well, he's the one, he's the salt, he's the light, let's follow him. Jesus even said so, didn't he? He said what? In John 8, chapter 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus made the announcement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm salt, I'm light, follow me and it was this sort on this light that the disciples encountered embraced and followed and changed them forever however 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 this is the key point it wasn't just good bloke living that changed them and this is really important it wasn't just good bloke living So Jesus is a good bloke, and he's a great guy to be around, and therefore, the salt and light that I see in Jesus, that's what's going to change me. I'm attracted by that. Let's follow that, because if that was true, that would happen for everybody. That would happen for all of us, wherever we are on the spectrum of following Jesus, because we would say, well, Jesus is a good bloke. He's a good guy. He's going to win the day. I like the look of him. Let's follow him, and yet so many people don't. So how does that work? How do they become salt and light when goodness alone doesn't doesn't cause it to happen? And the answer to that question is because there's two things that Jesus uniquely put on them, that changed them forever. And I'm calling it the salt of salvation and the light of the Holy Spirit. The salt of salvation and the light of the Holy Spirit. These are two things that uniquely changed the disciples of Jesus. And I would argue we uniquely need to change us as well. The sort of salvation and the light of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean? Sort of salvation is the cross of Christ. We've been singing about it in that first hymn, this morning, the cross of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, which was ultimately a perfect moment of purification when Jesus stopped the menace of sin and the decaying nature of it and brought freedom and new life. Jesus, the salt of the earth, stopping the decaying nature of the, me- the menace of sin and brought new life to us all in that moment in time. The menace of sin. What's the menace of sin? It's self centered living, devoid of God. That's what the menace of sin is, self-centered living devoid of God. And many people will say, well, self-centered living devoid of God gives you the good life, gives you fame and fortune and success and go after what you want to go after. Do things you want to do. Don't worry about the ramifications thereof. But the Bible teaches completely the opposite. It says the menace of sin gives you some outcomes of sin that aren't quite as attractive as we'd like them to be. So we get polluted lives. Sin pollutes us. It messes us up. We get involved with all sorts of stuff that actually ends up thinking, this is not doing me good after all. It's just the pollution of sin. We have imprisoned lives where we can't seem to break free from the addictions of sin that we're caught in. So you might be somebody who's addicted to alcohol or is addicted to drugs or, or is addicted to some kind of behavior. You know you can't break free of it. It has a, has a grasp over you. And that's what sin does. We can be addicted to something we just can't seem to break free of it imprisons us then we have broken lives as a result of sin where the penalty the, the the guilty conscience that comes on us when we do things wrong makes us feel uneasy and uncomfortable whatever we might think we know that wrong things done by us or to us make us feel incredibly guilty and nervous, and there's something inside us that we just can't seem to seem to break free from, broken lives. And then we have these estranged lives where we start to think, man, is this it? And if, and if life isn't really as exciting, as good as I thought it was, and I'm doing these wrong things, and it, God does exist, will he accept me? Can he love me? Am I acceptable and loved by God or by anybody? And so sin pollutes us, it imprisons us, it breaks us, and it estranges us from God. And all of a sudden, life doesn't seem so glorious as it did in the first place. It's Jesus that stops all of that through his death and resurrection. He cuts it all off. He stops the pollution. He stops the imprisonment. He stops the brokenness. He stops the estrangement. That's what the cross of Christ does. Jesus dies on the cross, and all of a sudden, the pollution of sin is made pure by Jesus. Salt doing its work, if you will. Jesus dies on the cross and breaks the power of imprisoned living. We're new creations in Christ. We've been singing it this morning. We're free in Christ, are we? we're free in Christ. We keep singing it, but are we? The cross says we are. Jesus paid the price of broken living by dying on the cross, took the punishment due to us, and then bridged the gap between us and God, and a strange relationship. That's the sort of salvation, and it was this that when the disciples saw it, when they believed it, when they understood it, when they embraced it, and when they followed it, it completely changed them. From a group of guys and possibly girls who said, no, we're not the salt of the earth, to thinking, man, we are the salt of the earth. I've seen it in Jesus. He's done it on the cross. Hello, let's go. Quite exciting. So the cross of Christ is fundamental in us knowing that we are the salt of the earth. And when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you're the salt of the earth. You grasp what the cross of Christ has done for you. And if you haven't, it won't make any difference at all. Jesus was making a proclamation over them. So that's the sort of salvation. What about the light of the Holy Spirit? Well, we heard about this two or three weeks ago when Adrian preached and what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, go out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, all the disciples, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, were scared, locked up in a room. They, kind of, they knew something of what the cross had done, but there was something missing. And then the Holy Spirit came on them, and the lights came on. The light of, the, of God, the fire of the Holy Spirit poured into them, and all of a sudden it was, I'm not staying in this room anymore, I'm getting out of here, and getting out on the street, and I'm going to be light of the world, because boy, there's some light that I've suddenly seen, which is there's power in the name of Jesus, that's exciting, it's why some of us on that particular Sunday went outside into the car park, slightly weirdly perhaps, to pray that we'd be lights shining wherever we are, whatever we're doing, because it's the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, us being filled regularly with the Holy Spirit, that causes us to be the light of the world, otherwise we're just another good bloke or another good girl. The light of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, that's what he was saying to them. It was a pronouncement that's true. You're the salt and you're light and go out there and be salt and be light. Be a sparkle of joy. Be a sparkle of mercy. Be a sparkle of grace and, joy and love. Be out there what I want you to be. Be like me, but don't do it just on your own good works. You can't do healing on miracles and be nice to people just because you can. Do it because you've understood that I'm the one that gives you the ability to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Salt and life. So who is salt and who is life? Well, Jesus absolutely is. That's the key point. But then so are they and so are all of us if we're followers of Jesus today. You are salt and light. You are salt and light. And the question is, are we up for being salt and light? So that's the second question. Who's salt and light? Jesus is, and we are. And finally, are we salt and are we light? Are we salt and are we light? And this is the point where we need to stay humble, open to God, not judge ourselves, but think, man, am I salt and am I light? Am I salt and am I light? Because Jesus says, you are. You are salt and you are light. And therefore, the question is, how are we, not are we? If we're followers of Jesus, not are we salt and are we light, but how are we salt and how are we light? It's why Jesus immediately goes on to, and I don't want to spend a long time talking about it, actually, immediately starts teaching, saying, what's the point of salt that loses its saltness? You might as well just kick it into touch and trample all over it. Pointless. You are salt. How are you salt? Don't lose your saltiness, is what he's saying. He's saying, you are light. How are you light? Look, if you are light, don't put it under a bucket or don't put it under a bowl you've got a light in one of those little houses with the 18 winch window and you're putting a light on a stand you're not going to put a bucket over it so you can't see anything in the house pointless he's saying you are you are salt you are light so how are you salt and how are you light that's what he wants us to get that's what he wanted them to get as well and so the question for us is how are we salt and how are we light now, I haven't got a lot of tick boxes that I'm going to bring this morning. Oh, we need, this, we, need this, we need to do this, and 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 we do all of those things, and we must be sorting in life and everybody's happy. What I wanted to do, really, is share an illustration. And from that illustration, get us to ask a question that I think will help us be open to God about where we're at in ho- this whole sorting in life thing. And the illustration is not really easy, it's a true story. I used to do interviews when I was in IT all those years ago now. I had the responsibility of employing people in my team. And uh, the responsibility that I had over a number of years started off with me being incredibly nervous about me interviewing people. The first person that I uh, interviewed was a 60-year-old woman. Uh, uh, she could tell that I was way more nervous than she was interviewing her. She didn't get the job because she could tell that I was nervous. I just thought, you're not having it. I'm not working with you. <laughs> It's nice, isn't it? That probably wasn't true. So, over the years, I got more and more comfortable interviewing people and found the interview process actually quite enjoyable. I ended up uh, getting to a point where I thought, well, I'm going to try and craft interviews in such a way that people can't prepare for them. Because the worst thing is when you just get prepared answers. I hate prepared answers. There was some technical stuff involved in my job, so I used to test them that fine, but it was the character stuff I was looking for. So uh, I interviewed one guy one time, we had a half an hour interview, came out of the interview, shook my hand, he said, I've got no idea what any of that was about, but I really enjoyed it, thank you. And I thought, oh, I'm doing my job. So I found out some things about him in which socks he'd pick out of a drawer and had a certain colour left in the morning. But anyway, one of the questions I used to ask, one of the questions I used to ask was, uh, if there's something about you that you'd really like me not to ask you, what would it be? That was really insightful, that question, because people were immediately faced with, do I tell him the truth, or do I do I prepare prepared an answer? And I could tell. And even if people tell me the truth, sometimes it was pretty edgy stuff they told me, and I thought, man, I'm not having you, <laughs> honestly. But I, I commended them for the honesty. I didn't tell them there and then, obviously. But on the other hand, sometimes people told me things that I thought, ah, oh, I like the fact you've told me that. So one guy told me one time that he was really difficult to manage. He gave me a, a scenario wh- how he was difficult to manage, but at least I knew he was difficult to manage. it's okay you can have someone in your team who's difficult to manage as long as you know that they are and they're honest about the fact that they are anyway the point is this one of my favorite questions and this is no it's not particularly like changing the world type stuff it's simply this how would the closest person to you describe you to me how would the closest person to you describe you to me so if they were married how would your wife or your husband describe you to me or if they had brothers or sisters that were particularly close to, how would they describe you to me? Now, obviously, I didn't know whether they were going to tell me the truth at that point, but it was an interesting question because all of a sudden they had to think how would that person describe them, not how they would describe them. And that's the question I want us, as followers of Jesus, as we explore this salt and life theme, to ask ourselves. How would the person closest to you describe you to me, if they were here, if they were being honest? How would they describe you to me? Not necessarily just the closest person, but anybody in life that we rub shoulders with in normal life. So if you are a parent at home with children, how would your children describe you to me? How would your children describe you to me? Our, our two, we had a conversation the other day with our two kids, and they started sh- sharing some things about me and Janie that, to be quite honest with you, were quite hurtful because they were true. I didn't want them to be true, but they were true. So, so one of them said, Dad, sometimes you can say the most ridiculous things without even really thinking. You just think you're right. I, I don't want to be like that. And yeah, was true, you know. Sometimes uh, one of them said, you know, we don't listen. All we do is sort of bombard them with a whole load of do this, do this, do this, do this, and your life will be good for you. I don't want to be like that how would your children, if you've got them, describe you to me? If you're married, a husband, wife, or partner at home, how would they describe you? Housemates, if you don't have you know, people that you're married to, how would your housemates describe you to me? Work colleagues at work, how would they describe you to me? Another damning story, and it's true, I know it's going back a few years now, but when I was in business again, there was a tall lady that joined our, our company. I can't remember her name, uh, but we became good mates. <laughs> we became good mates. That good mate, I can't remember her name. Uh, anyway... The thing that did me in one day, uh, about two or three months after um, she joined, and when we had become good mates, she said, Look, you've got to know this, guys. When I first joined this company, I was really frightened of you. I, I, I just thought you were really, you made me feel nervous, and you looked a bit scary. And I thought, Oh, dear, this is dreadful news. Honestly, this is dreadful. I was a Christian then, by the way, you know, obviously not a church pastor, but I was a Christian that had a passion for Jesus. And she was saying that I was scary and frightening. That's outrageous news. The office manager at the time, um, uh, when we used to do Christmas, well, again, our, ours was the only department. Ours was the only department that, that we didn't decorate at Christmas time. Right? Oh, no. We were so busy. We didn't have anything. We literally we had so much pressure in the IT. The IT department in any company is the one that everybody kicks. It's always every IT's fault. Everybody's fault. It's good practice for church church life, to be honest with you, because everything's still your fault. <laughs> <laughs> So in general, I found it really hard to make time to do fluffy little decorations. But the office manager came and said, you're really boring because you're the only department that don't do decorations at Christmas. And you know what? She was right. Not particularly being salt and light in those situations, am I? In those situations. Don't want to be like that, But was being like that. That's a work situation. If you're out of work, going down the job centre, looking for work, how are the people that are trying to help you find work, how would they describe you to me? How would they describe you to me? If you're in the hospital system, I've got a friend who some of you know called Vince in the hospital system because of the cancer that he's in. Whenever I go in there, I can just see him building great rapport and friendship and connectivity with all the, the doctors and nurses and everybody else he comes into contact with. He's a light shining in those situations. I take a leaf out of his book whenever I go into the hospital and think I need to be positive and upbeat. So when I recently had physio for my knee, ah, I was particularly—oh, yeah, thank you. I was particularly on the front foot... In terms of being extra positive, extra friendly, showing an interest and always saying thank you to the physio that one had done whatever physio class I've been part of, for example. If you're in the hospital system, are you in there moaning and groaning? Or are you in there thinking I'm going to be a light shining for Jesus? Someone who loves sport. This is one of my favourites. If you're a sport person here this morning, out on, whether it's tennis or football or cricket or rugby or whatever it is, what are you like on the pitch, honestly? What are you like on the pitch? I, you know... I may get into trouble saying this. I can't stand it when people who stand up on a Sunday morning, wave their hands in the air, say, Jesus is wonderful, blah, 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 and then just start getting grumpy or kicking people or just can't cope when somebody kicks them. Because that's not being salt and light, is it? We've got to be men or women of integrity. I'm not saying it's wrong to want to win, and I'm not saying it's wrong to want to be aggressive, but you've got to be in control. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit being self-control. We're taking some guys away two weekends time to a football tournament, a National Christian Football Tournament, Monday Night Football Ethics, Playing hard, playing fair, playing with a smile on our faces, playing with no dodgy tackles, uh, playing with as little dodgy language as we possibly can. Obviously, that more relates to the, uh, the unbelievers than the believers, although, discuss. <laughs> but that's my point. Sort and light. I want to be sort and light on the football pitch. I now pride myself in a right way that I'm self con- controlled, very aggressive. I've got the biggest shout probably on the whole of the, the one, one week, two weeks ago. I shouted and everybody laughed because it was so loud. You know, They thought, whoa, what's going on there? Some weird person sounded really loud in the park. But what are we like on the sports pitch? Jesus wants us to be salt and light because we are salt and light. So how are we salt and light is the question. And then finally, if you're someone who likes going to a pub or a club, and I know many of us do, what are you like in those situations? Are you like everybody else or are you different? As you can see, therefore, there's there's nothing in there which is you must do this. Well, there's a few. I'm not giving you a whole, you've got to tick all these things in order to be salt and light. What I want us to do is, before God, say, look, we are salt and light. God's given us an identity in him, which is you are salt and you are light. you are salt, you are light. Are we getting it? You are salt, you are light. In your context, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, you are salt and you are light. How are you salt and how are you light? How are you salt and how are you light? And the whole context of how you want to be in your situation is absolutely completely nothing. You're going to be dependent on about how close you are to Jesus, how much you've really understood and get what he's done for you by dying on the cross, and how often you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a light shining for him in that context. And we, t- we in Oasis Church, we want to be salt and light. We do want to be salt and light. We want to be people that are shining in the darkness. We want to be people uh, who are out there with the cricket people are warm and friendly and gather people in all the way. We want to be like that. Not always easy. But Jesus says, we are. The question is, how are we? I'm going to close at that point, Um, which was a bit sudden, I know. It didn't help you land very well on that one. Why don't we stand for a minute? The band's going to come back. We're just going to... We're just going to sing, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, one more time. And uh, the reason we're going to sing this song is because the last verse, the last verse is a massive one, because it talks about divining my life, my soul, my all. My life, my soul, and my all. And all I want us to do as we sing this song is just say, examine your heart as you sing it. The the The, the, the cross of Christ, central, the power of the Holy Spirit, vital, what does it mean to offer my soul, my life, my all in your context with any of those illustrations that I've given today? And at the end of at the end of the hymn, I'm going to invite people to come forward for prayer. If you're thinking, I just need a little bit more. I need a little bit more of God's forgiveness. A little bit more of God's encouragement. I need a greater understanding of the cross of Christ. I certainly want to be filled with the Holy Spirit because I know that's where it all begins and ends. I want you to come forward. I'll, I'll do. It. I'll ask you at the end. At the end of that uh, of that hymn. Now, can I just say this before I will shut up? We're going to sing the hymn, this may not work, we're going to sing the hymn because of time, as soon as the hymn's finished, when I come back, I'm going to invite you that have got parents to go and get your kids. So when I come back, that's what I'm going to do, and then if you want to come back for prayer after that, great, so we're going to sing the hymn, I'll come back, invite parents to go and get kids, and then we'll do some ministry after that.